and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. We ended last week with our heroine telling Mrs. Gross to shut her damn mouth and to let her handle the whole ghost situation. I have to say, it's been a while since I had read this novella, like several years, and I forgot that the themes got pretty disturbing. I found a great article on what went on between Quint and the children that is so delicately described in such a Victorian fashion by Mr. James that it can easily be missed. I'll link the article in the show notes. It has major spoilers. Once I'm done with the entire series, I'll post it on social media again. But for those of you who know the ending, it's a very fascinating look at the story as a whole. Apparently, the operatic version of the story gets a little more frank with some of the themes of the novel. It also confirms a lot of suspicions you may have had. Like I said, Mr. James wrote in a very politely Victorian way, and some of the things he mentions makes you go, did he mean what I think he meant? Or maybe, since you're only listening to me narrate it and aren't seeing the words yourselves, some of these tougher themes may have even gone completely over your head, which I don't blame you. We are all different types of learners, and I am personally not an audio learner. I'm a visual learner, so sometimes I miss things if I'm not actively reading it with my own eyes. Anyway, before we begin, I got to participate in a very fun podcast that I actually recorded for several months ago, and I've been on pins and needles waiting for it to come out. It's by the creators of Olive Hill, one of my favorite audio drama slash horrors ever, and I was absolutely ecstatic when they reached out to me to be a part of their newest podcast creation called 13. It comes out on the 13th of every month, and it's so scary and so well-written, and today's episode has a cameo by me. So go check it out. Again, it's called 13, and it's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's get on with this, shall we? Funny enough, we're starting with chapter 13. It was all very well to join them. But speaking to them proved quite as much as ever an effort beyond my strength. Offered in close quarters, difficulties as insurmountable as before. This situation continued a month, and with my new aggravations and particular notes, the note above all, sharper and sharper, of the small ironic consciousness on the part of my pupils, It was not. I am as sure today as I was sure then. My mere infernal imagination. It was absolutely traceable that they were aware of my predicament, and that this strange relation made, in a manner for a long time, the air in which we moved. I don't mean that they had their tongues in their cheeks or did anything vulgar, for that was not one of their dangers. I do mean, on the other hand, that the element of the unnamed and untouched became, between us, greater than any other, and that so much avoidance could not have been so successfully effected without a great deal of tacit arrangement. It was as if, at moments, we were perpetually coming into sight of subjects before, which we must stop short, turning suddenly out of alleys that we perceived to be blind, closing with a little bang that made us look at each other, for, like all bangs, it was something louder than we had intended, the doors we had indiscreetly opened. 
All roads lead to Rome, and there were times when it might have struck us that almost every branch of study or subject of conversation skirted forbidden ground. Forbidden ground was the question of the return of the dead in general, and of whatever, in especial, might survive in memory of the friends little children had lost. There were days when I could have sworn that one of them had, with a small invisible nudge, said to the other, She thinks she'll do it this time, but she won't. To do it would have been to indulge, for instance, and for once in a way, in some direct reference to the lady who had prepared them for my discipline. They had a delightful, endless appetite for passages in my own history, to which I had again and again treated them. They were in possession of everything that had ever happened to me, had had with every circumstance the story of my smallest adventures and of those of my brothers and sisters and of the cat and the dog at home, as well as many particulars of the eccentric nature of my father, of the furniture and the arrangement of our house, and of the conversation of the old women of our village. There were things enough, taking one with the other, to chatter about, if one went very fast and knew by instinct when to go round. They pulled, with an art of their own, the strings of my invention and my memory. And nothing else, perhaps, when I thought of such occasions afterwards, gave me so the suspicion of being watched from undercover. It was as, in any case, over my life, my past, and my friends alone, that we could take anything like our ease, a state of affairs that led them sometimes without the least pertinence to break out into sociable reminders. I was invited, with no visible connection, to repeat a fresh Goody Gosling celebrated mo, or to confirm the details already supplied as to the cleverness of the vicarage pony. It was partly at such junctures as these, and partly at quite different ones, that, with the turn of my matters had now taken, my predicament, as I have called it, grew most sensible. The fact that the days passed for me without another encounter ought, it would have appeared, to have done something toward soothing my nerves, since the light brush that second night on the upper landing of the presence of a woman at the foot of the stair, I had seen nothing, whether in or out of the house. That one had better not have been seen. There was many a corner round which I expected to come upon Quint, and many a situation that, in a merely sinister way, would have favored the appearance of Miss Jessel. The summer had turned, the summer had gone. The autumn had dropped upon Bly and had blown out half our lights. The place, with its gray sky and withered garlands, its bared spaces and scattered dead leaves, was like a theater after the performance, all strewn with crumpled playbills. There were exactly states of the air, conditions of sound and of stillness, unspeakable impressions of the kind of ministering moment that brought back to me, long enough to catch it, the feeling of the medium in which that June evening out of doors, I had had my first sight of Quint, and in which, too, at those other instants, I had, after seeing him through the window, looked for him in vain in the circle of shrubbery. 
I recognize the signs, the portents. I recognize the moment, the spot. But they remained unaccompanied and empty. And I continued unmolested, if unmolested one could call a young woman whose sensibility had, in the most extraordinary fashion, not declined, but deepened. I had said in my talk with Mrs. Gross on that horrid scene of Flora's by the lake, and had perplexed her by saying so, that it would be from that moment distress me much more to lose my power than to keep it. I had then expressed what was vividly in my mind, the truth that, whether the children really saw or not, since, that is, it was not yet definitely proved, I greatly preferred, as a safeguard, the fullness of my own exposure. I was ready to know the very worst that was to be known. What I had then had an ugly glimpse of was that my eyes might be sealed just while theirs were most opened. Well, my eyes were sealed, it appeared at present, a consummation for which it seemed blasphemous not to thank God. There was, alas, a difficulty about that. I would have thanked him with all my soul had I not, in a proportionate measure, this conviction of the secret of my pupils. How can I retrace today the strange steps of my obsession? There were times of our being together when I would have been ready to swear that literally in my presence, but with my direct sense of it closed, they had visitors who were known and were welcome. Then it was that, had I not been deterred by the very chance that such an injury might prove greater than the injury to be averted, my exultation would have broken out. They're here, they're here, you little wretches, I would have cried, and you can't deny it now. The little wretches denied it with all the added volume of their sociability and their tenderness, in just the crystal depths of which, like the flash of a fish in a stream, the mockery of their advantage peeped up. The shock, in truth, had sunk into me still deeper than I knew on the night when, looking out to see either Quint or Miss Jessel under the stars, I had beheld the boy over whose rest I had watched, and who had immediately brought in with him, had straightway there turned it on me, the lovely upward look with which, from the battlements above me, the hideous apparition of Quint had played. If it was a question of a scare, my discovery on this occasion had scared me more than any other, and it was in the condition of nerves produced by it that I made my actual inductions. They harassed me so that sometimes at odd moments I shut myself up audibly to rehearse. It was at once a fantastic relief and a renewed despair the manner in which I might come to the point. I approached it from one side and the other while in my room I flung myself about, but I always broke down in the monstrous utterance of names. As they died away on my lips, I said to myself that I should indeed help them to represent something infamous if, by pronouncing them, I should violate as rare a little case of instinctive delicacy as any schoolroom probably had ever known, when I said to myself, they have the manners to be silent, and you, 
trusted as you are, the baseness to speak. I felt myself crimson, and I covered my face with my hands. After these secret scenes, I chattered more than ever, going on volubly enough till one of our prodigious palpable hushes occurred. I can call them nothing else. The strange, dizzy lift or swim, I try for terms, into a stillness, a pause of all life that had nothing to do with the more or less noise that at the moment we might be engaged in making and that I could hear through any deepened exhilaration or quickened recitation or louder strum of the piano. Then it was the others. The outsiders were there. Though they were not angels, they passed, as the French say, causing me, while they stayed, to tremble with the fear of their addressing to their younger victims some yet more infernal message or more vivid image than they had thought good enough for myself. What it was impossible to get rid of was the cruel idea that whatever I had seen, Miles and Flora saw more. Things terrible and unguessable and that sprang from dreadful passages of intercourse in the past. Such things naturally left on the surface for the time, a chill which we vociferously denied that we felt. And we had, all three, with repetition, got into such splendid training that we went, each time, almost automatically, to mark the close of the incident through the very same movements. It was striking of the children, at all events, to kiss me, inveterately, with a kind of wild irrelevance, and never to fail, one or the other, of the precious question that had helped us through many a peril. When do you think he will come? Don't you think we ought to write? There was nothing like that inquiry, we found by experience, for carrying off an awkwardness. He, of course, was their uncle in Harley Street, and we lived in much profusion of theory that he might at any moment arrive to mingle in our circle. It was impossible to have given less encouragement than he had done to such a doctrine, but if we had not the doctrine to fall back upon, we should have deprived each other of some of our finest exhibitions. He never wrote to them. That may have been selfish, but it was a part of the flattery of his trust in me. For the way in which a man pays his highest tribute to a woman is apt to be but the more festal celebration of one of the sacred laws of his comfort. And I held that I carried out the spirit of the pledge, given not to appeal to him when I let my charges understand that their own letters were but charming literary exercises. They were too beautiful to be posted. I kept them myself. I have them all to this hour. This was a rule indeed which only added to the satiric effect of my being plied with supposition that he might at any moment be among us. It was exactly as if my charges knew how almost more awkward than anything else that might be for me. There appears to me, moreover, as I look back, no note in all this more extraordinary than the mere fact that, in spite of my tension and of their triumph, I never lost patience with them. Adorable, they must in truth have been, I now reflect that I didn't in these days hate them. Would exasperation, however, if relief had longer been postponed, 
finally have betrayed me? It little matters, for relief arrived. I call it relief, though it was only the relief that a snap brings to a strain or the burst of a thunderstorm to a day of suffocation. It was at least change, and it came with a rush. Chapter 14 Walking to church a certain Sunday morning, I had little Miles at my side, and his sister in advance of us, and at Mrs. Gross's, well in sight. It was a crisp, clear day, the first of its order for some time. The night had brought a touch of frost, and the autumn air, bright and sharp, made the church bells almost gay. It was an odd accident of thought that I should have happened at such a moment to be particularly and very gratefully struck with the obedience of my little charges. Why did they never resent my inexorable, my perpetual society? Something or other had brought nearer home to me that I had all but pinned the boy to my shawl, and that, in the way our companions were marshaled before me, I might have appeared to provide against some danger of rebellion. I was like a jailer, with an eye to possible surprises and escapes. But all this belonged, I mean their magnificent little surrender, just to the special array of the facts that were most abysmal. Turned out for Sunday by his uncle's tailor, who had a free hand and a notion of pretty waistcoats and of his grand little heir, Miles's whole title to independence, the rights of his sex and situation, were so stamped upon him that if he had suddenly struck for freedom, I should have had nothing to say. I was by the strangest of chances wondering how I should meet him when the revolution unmistakably occurred. I call it a revolution because I now see how, with the word he spoke, the curtain rose on the last act of my dreadful drama, and the catastrophe was precipitated. Look here, my dear, you know, he charmingly said. When in the world, please, am I going back to school? Transcribed here, the speech sounds harmless enough, particularly as uttered in the sweet, high, casual pipe with which all interlocutors, but above all, at his eternal governess, he threw off intonations as if he were tossing roses. There was something in them that always made one catch, and I caught, at any rate, now so effectually that I stopped as short as if one of the trees of the park had fallen across the road. There was something new, on the spot between us, and he was perfectly aware that I recognized it, though, to enable me to do so, he had no need to look a whit less candid and charming than usual. I could feel in him how he already, from my at first finding nothing to reply, perceived the advantage he had gained. I was so slow to find anything that he had plenty of time, after a minute, to continue with his suggestive but inconclusive smile. You know, my dear, that for a fellow to be with a lady always... His my dear was constantly on his lips for me, and nothing could have expressed more the exact shade of the sentiment with which I desired to inspire my pupils than its fond familiarity. It was so respectfully easy. But, oh, how I felt that at present I must pick my own phrases. I remember that, to gain time, I tried to laugh, and uh, I seemed to see in that 
beautiful face with which he watched me, how ugly and queer I looked. And always with the same lady? I returned. He neither blinched nor winked. The whole thing was virtually out between us. Ah, of course. She's a jolly perfect lady. But after all, I'm a fellow, don't you see? That's, well, getting on. I lingered there with him an instant, ever so kindly. Yes, you're getting on. Oh, but I felt helpless. I have kept to this day the heartbreaking little idea of how he seemed to know that and to play with it. And you can't say I've not been awfully good, can you? I laid my hand on his shoulder, for though I felt how much better it would have been to walk on, I was not yet quite able. No, I can't say that, Miles. Except just that one night, you know? That one night? I couldn't look as straight as he. Why, when I went down, went out of the house. Oh, yes. But I forget what you did that for. You forget? He spoke with the sweet extravagance of childish reproach. Why, it was to show you I could. Oh, yes, you could. And I can again. I felt that I might, perhaps, after all, succeed in keeping my wits about me. Certainly, but you won't. No, not that again. It was nothing. It was nothing, I said. But we must go on. He resumed our walk with me, passing his hand into my arm. Then when am I going back? I wore, in turning it over, my most responsible air. Were you very happy at school? He just considered. Oh, I am happy enough anywhere. Well then... I quavered. If you're just as happy here... Ah, but that isn't everything. Of course, you know a lot. But you hint that you know almost as much. I risked as he paused. Not half I want to, Miles honestly professed. But it isn't so much that. What is it then? Well, I want to see more life. I see, I see. We had arrived within sight of the church and of various persons, including several of the household of Bly, on their way to it and clustered about the door to see us go in. I quickened our step. I wanted to get there before the question between us opened up much further. I reflected hungrily that for more than an hour he would have to be silent, and I thought with envy of the comparative dusk of the pew and of the almost spiritual help of the hassock in which I might bend my knees. I seemed literally to be running a race with some confusion to which he was about to reduce me, but I felt that he had got in first when, before we had even entered the churchyard, he threw out, I want my own sort. 
It literally made me bound forward. There are not many of your own sort, Miles. I laughed. Unless perhaps dear little Flora. You really compare me to a baby girl? This found me singularly weak. Don't you then love our sweet Flora? If I didn't, and you too, if I didn't, he repeated as if retreating for a jump, yet leaving his thought so unfinished that after we had come into the gate, another stop, which he imposed on me by the pressure of his arm, had become inevitable. Mrs. Gross and Flora had passed into the church, the other worshippers had followed, and we were, for the minute, alone among the old, thick graves. We had paused on the path from the gate, by a low, oblong, table-like tomb. Yes, if you didn't. He looked, while I waited, about at the graves. Well, you know what? But he didn't move, and he presently produced something that made me drop straight down on the stone slab, as if suddenly to rest. Does my uncle think what you think? I markedly rested. How do you know what I think? Ah, well, of course I don't. For it strikes me, you never tell me. But I mean, does he know? Know what, Miles? Why, the way I'm going on. I perceived quickly enough that I could make to this inquiry, no answer that would not involve something of a sacrifice of my employer, yet it appeared to me that we were all at Bly, sufficiently sacrificed to make that venial. I don't think your uncle much cares. Miles, on this, stood looking at me. Then don't you think he can be made to? In what way? Why, by his coming down. But who'll get him to come down? I will, the boy said with extraordinary brightness and emphasis. He gave me another look, charged with that expression, and then marched off alone into the church. Chapter 15 the business was practically settled from the moment I never followed him. It was a pitiful surrender to agitation, but my being aware of this had somehow no power to restore me. I only sat there on my tomb and read into what my little friend had said to me, the fullness of its meaning. By the time I had grasped the whole of which I had also embraced, for absence, the pretext that I was ashamed to offer my pupils and the rest of the congregation such an example of delay. What I said to myself above all was that Miles had got something out of me, and that the proof of it, for him, would be just this awkward collapse. He had got out of me that there was something I was much afraid of, and that he should probably be able to make use of my fear to gain, for his own purpose, more freedom. My fear was of having to deal with the intolerable questions of the grounds of his dismissal from school, 
for that was really but the question of the horrors gathered behind. That his uncle should arrive to treat with me of these things was a solution that, strictly speaking, I ought now to have desired to bring on. But I could so little face the ugliness and the pain of it that I simply procrastinated and lived from hand to mouth. The boy, to my deep discomposure, was immensely in the right, was in a position to say, either you clear up with my guardian the mystery of this interruption of my studies, or you cease to expect me to lead with you a life that's so unnatural for a boy. What was so unnatural for the particular boy I was concerned with was this sudden revelation of a consciousness and a plan. That was what really overcame me, what prevented my going in. I walked around the church, hesitating, hovering. I reflected that I had already, with him, hurt myself beyond repair. Therefore, I could patch up nothing, and it was too extreme an effort to squeeze beside him into the pew. He would be so much more sure than ever to pass his arm into mine, and make me sit there for an hour in close, silent contact with his commentary on our talk. For the first minute since his arrival, I wanted to get away from him. As I paused beneath the high east window and listened to the sounds of worship, I was taken with an impulse that might master me, I felt, completely, should I give it the least encouragement. I might easily put an end to my predicament by getting away altogether. Here was my chance. There was no one to stop me. I could give the whole thing up, turn my back, and retreat. It was only a question of hurrying again, for a few preparations, to the house, which the attendants at church of so many of the servants would practically have left unoccupied. No one, in short, could blame me if I should just drive desperately off. What was it to get away if I got away only till dinner? That would be in a couple of hours, at the end of which I had the acute provision. My little pupils would play at innocent wonder at my non-appearance in their train. What did you do, you naughty bad thing? Why in the world to worry us so, and take our thoughts off too, don't you know? Did you desert us at the very door? I couldn't meet such questions, nor, as they asked them, their false little lovely eyes. Yet it was all so exactly what I should have to meet, that, as the prospect grew sharp in me, I, at last, let myself go. I got, so far as the immediate moment was concerned, away. I came straight out of the churchyard and, thinking hard, retraced my steps through the park. It seemed to me that by the time I reached the house, I had made up my mind I would fly. The Sunday stillness, both of the approaches and of the interior, in which I met no one, fairly excited me with a sense of opportunity. Were I to get off quickly, this way, I should get off without a scene, without a word. My quickness would have to be remarkable, however, and the question of a conveyance was the great one to settle. Tormented in the hall with difficulties and obstacles, I remember sinking down at the foot of the staircase, suddenly collapsing there on the lowest step, and then, with a revulsion, recalling that it was exactly where More than a month before, in the darkness of night and just so bowed with evil things, I had seen the specter of the most horrible of women. At this, I was able to straighten myself. 
I went the rest of the way up. I made, in my bewilderment, for the schoolroom, where there were objects belonging to me that I should have to take. But I opened the door to find again, in a flash, my eyes unsealed. In the presence of what I saw, I reeled straight back upon my resistance. Seated at my own table, in clear noonday light, I saw a person whom, without my previous experience, I should have taken at the first blush for some housemaid who might have stayed at home to look after the place and who, availing herself of rare relief from observation and of the schoolroom table and my pens, ink, and paper, had applied herself to the considerable effort of a letter to her sweetheart. There was an effort in the way that, while her arms rested on the table, her hands, with evident weariness, supported her head. But at the moment I took this in, I had already become aware that, in spite of my entrance, her attitude strangely persisted. Then it was, with the very act of its announcing itself, that her identity flared up in a change of posture. She rose, not as if she had heard me, but with an indescribable grand melancholy of indifference and detachment, and, within a dozen feet of me, stood there as my vile predecessor. Dishonored and tragic, she was all before me, but even as I fixed and, for memory, secured it, the awful image passed away. Dark as midnight in her black dress, her haggard beauty and her unutterable woe, she had looked at me long enough to appear to say that her right to sit at my table was as good as mine to sit at hers. While these instants lasted, indeed, I had the extraordinary chill of feeling that it was I who was the intruder. It was as a wild protest against it that, actually addressing her, You! Terrible, miserable woman! I heard myself break into a sound that, by the open door, rang through the long passage and the empty house. She looked at me as if she heard me, but I had recovered myself and cleared the air. There was nothing in the room the next minute, but the sunshine and a sense that I must stay. <laughs>